For those of you who were paying attention last week, um, you will have noticed that in the bulletin I said that I was going to preach from, from 12 to 17, and I totally lied to you on that. I preached from 12 to 16, and I didn't mention uh, verse 17, which was very naughty of me. Um, there will be coal coming to me, which will be okay because it's going to be cold and we can burn that thing. Uh, but uh, but I, I specifically left off verse 17 because while it sort of wraps everything up in a neat little bow, and it certainly does that, um, I wanted to take a, a little bit more time to sort of go over what Paul is calling us to there, to sort of put some, some flesh to it, as it were. And uh, the, the, what Paul is asking us to do with verse 17 is something that we want to sort of make a little bit more explicit. So we'll read First Colossians 3.17, and then we will talk about what it means to do things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Simply 3.17 this morning, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We don't often mean names in the same way that the Bible means names when it, it gives people names or it talks about names. We, we don't name our children the same way. I have three kids and each one is named. Um, thankfully, we don't just call them boy or girl one and girl two. Um, sometimes I do call them boy, but that's okay. So Lillian is named after a relative, which is normal. We, we do this in our culture. We name people after their relatives. I am named after my grandfather, Isaac is named after the biblical name of Isaac. We don't have anybody else in our family who's named Isaac. We wanted to pick a nice name for him that sounded nice to us and also was something of a traditional name uh, related to scripture. Lou, we simply named Lucy because, man, that name was cute. And, uh, and she embodies it well. Um, there is no Lou who has ever looed as much as she loos. So <laughs> she, is, she is a very, um, very aptly named little girl. But we picked those names out, and we do so before we, we knew them. We had each of those names picked out before Bree gave birth to each one of our children. Um, so we knew nothing about them before we named them. We, we knew boy versus girl, uh, but we, we didn't know much else about them. We find that this is often the way that things go. There's a very um, interesting anecdote in the book Freakonomics um, by gentlemen Dubner and Levitt where they talk about names and this sort of colloquial wisdom that we have that, that names mean a lot in how your life will play out. And they give the example, um, a very fortunate example in their case, of a family whose last name was Lane. And the Lanes had two boys that were separated by some years, and uh, they each had very interesting names. The first son they named Winner. Okay. And so um, Winner was, had this beautiful label put on him. Um, certainly he was going to go through life like gangbusters. The second son, however, was not quite as fortunate. Um, one wonders about Mr. Lane, uh, but we'll get back to him. But his second son, he actually named Loser, okay? um, which was a, a name that we floated a while for Isaac, but we decided against that. So, um, and it turns out that for their study, it's very helpful. Winner uh, turned out to be a quite long list of delinquencies in his life, ending up in jail. 
Loser, on the other hand, was not only a star athlete and scholar, but he went to college, he graduated, is now a detective on, I believe, New York City's police department. So, very accomplished man. Um, You'll imagine that as a sergeant, he doesn't go by loser anymore, he goes by Lou, although I would imagine that people who work under him every once in a while want to call him by his full name. Um, I don't know how you would get around that, but nevertheless, we don't think of names as carrying a tremendous amount of meaning. We, We just don't. So so it is what you are known by, but it doesn't imply much about you. Even as we go back through Scripture, what we find is that when we name people, we either name them based on family or tradition or the aesthetics of the name, or when we provide nicknames to people, we provide nicknames to people that are ironic or fitting, but they do so based on things that we already know. So, for instance, in, in Genesis 17, and you can flip back there, we're going to be in Exodus, or excuse me, Genesis 12, 15, 17 this morning. In Genesis 17, <clears throat> excuse me, at the end of Genesis 16, you have Hagar, who has been driven by Sarah out of Abram's family into the desert, thinking that she and her child are going to die when God visits her. And so she aptly names God in verse 13 of, um, ver- of chapter 16, the God of seeing. That he is a God who sees. And why does she name him that? Not because he's going to see her, but because he has already seen her. This is how we name things, but this is not, however, how God names things. Before we even begin, we need to say very clearly that when we talk in Jesus' name, what we don't mean and what we do mean. What we're going to do is we're going to look at Genesis and we're going to work our way through some of the Genesis text so we can see what it means when God gives names for people. Okay, We will eventually get back around to Christ. But we also want to make it very clear what we don't mean when we say in Jesus' name. And when we say in Jesus' name, we do not, it does not mean that we simply speak. Okay, It doesn't mean that it's a magic word. Okay? It doesn't just come off of our lips and we say, in Jesus' name, and poof, that thing is going to happen. There are a number of misquoted verses in Scripture. Many of them are misquoted all the time and consistently. Some of these would include Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. doesn't mean what a lot of people take it to mean. When Paul there is talking about simply being content regardless of the situation that he is found in. One of our culture's most favorite verses to misinterpret would be Matthew 7.1. Judge not, or you will also be judged likewise. And they always seem to remember, anytime a secular person who's never read scripture before quotes you something, it's always in the King James Version. So they would say, judge not lest ye be judged, right? So what that means is that you can't judge me. Nevertheless, even though Jesus, like three verses later, is calling people pigs, which I'm pretty sure isn't a good thing, he does call them swine, right? So there's clearly judgment happening, but nevertheless, don't judge me, man. One of the, the worst is... John 14, 12 through 14, where Jesus says things like, man, you're going to go out and you're going to do better things than even I have done. Your deeds will exceed mine. And he says, most importantly for us, whatever you ask in my name, ask and I will give it to you. There are a lot of people, believe it or not, who have taken that quite literally. And they believe that as long as we pronounce the name Jesus over something, that that thing will be given to us. What do we mean when we say that we speak in Jesus' name? Well, let's go back to Genesis and let's look at what names mean when God gives them to people 
and we're going to follow some of the, the narrative of Genesis, and then we're going to talk about what it means for Jesus to be named Jesus. You'll remember back in Genesis 1 and 2, we have a name given to man, but it's Adam. But you'll recognize if you read that, that carefully, that God isn't naming Adam that. Adam is just given that name. It, it just sort of sits on him. It doesn't say God named him that. As a matter of fact, it just means man. Okay, So he's literally named man. It isn't until Genesis 17 that we actually have a name being given by God to someone. But our story picks up in Genesis 12. God has called, and we even read parts of this uh, this morning from the book of Galatians. God looks to Abram, not Abraham, but Abram, and he says, you are going to come with me and I will bless you immensely. He says this, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and, whom, and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now as you read through the rest of 12 and 13 and 14, you find out that Abram is incredibly blessed by God. As he travels and he gets himself into predicaments, God gets him out of predicaments. God helps him in war. God continues to lavish upon him wealth and possessions. He gives him a land. He says, look to your left and look to your right. As far as you can see, it's all yours. Abram is being given everything that he could possibly want so that by the time we get to chapter 15, it looks like the promises that God has made are coming true. And even God in chapter 15 re-ups those promises. And he says this at the beginning of chapter 15. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Which is considerable given how much he's already been rewarded by God. But listen to Abram's response. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Eliezer might be a nice guy, right? right? But he's not my nice guy. He's not my child. It's, it's somebody who simply is in my house. And no matter how much good stuff you give me, remember all of the things that God has provided for him, cattle and wealth and land. His hand has been upon him wherever he has gone, victory and battle, everything that God has given to him. And he says, you know, Lord, th- this doesn't mean anything unless I have a child of my own, one that I can pass this on to. You can imagine how much this weighed on him. Think of all that he has been given, and yet still, in all of that, this is the thing that weighs him down. God then, of course, takes him outside and says, look up to the heavens and see all of the stars. You can imagine how many stars there are. There are no ambient light out in the desert, no humidity out in the desert, nothing but pure starlight. And he says, this is what your, your offspring will be. It is not for no reason than after that. There's a couple of things to note about that, and especially in the narrative, what happens directly after that. Sarai, which is her name, not Sarah yet, but Sarai, is not mentioned anywhere in the promises. These promises were never meant for Sarai. At no point in time does God say, Abram and Sarai, I will bless you and I will make you great. But he says it only to Abram, only to Abram. This isn't to lessen the importance of Sarah. You're going to find out here in just a minute how important she really is. But nevertheless, the promises don't come to him. And so Sarah does something, Sarai, excuse me, does something terribly important. Immediately in chapter 16, knowing that she is unable to give birth at this point in time. Now, we don't know if it's Abram or Sarah who was the problem. You've read ahead, so you know that it was Sarah's womb that was the problem. Nevertheless, she says, 
I will give you my servant, Hagar. Now, as much as being childless must have weighed upon Abram, it must have weighed just as much upon Sarah because it is very clear by what the narrative says in the coming verses that she knew the weight that was on her. Because as soon as Hagar conceives, whether Hagar actually turns on her and starts to think better of herself than of Sarah, or whether Sarah is just reading into it, immediately there is friction between the two women. Sarah has done an amazing thing in this. She, she has heard the promise of God that God has go- said, you will have offspring, you will, you will gain offspring, Abram. And she says, I, I am not going to be able to do this, so I'm going to provide a way for Abram to have his offspring. It is, if in the best reading, just an incredibly sacrificial gift that she is actually not prepared to give. Because as soon as Hagar conceives, there is friction and anger and malice between the two. And Sarah berates her and treats her horribly, so much so that Hagar is willing to risk death by fleeing into the desert. Then in chapter 17, God has rescued Hagar, has told Hagar to go back. Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. His name is Ishmael because the Lord had listened to her affliction God told her, you will name him Ishmael. When chapter 17 begins then, we have something very important. God sets up circumcision in chapter 17. But more important than that, there is an abrupt change to Abram's name. Beginning of chapter 17, verse 8, we hear, or excuse me, verse, um, verse 5, we hear this. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Abram means father is exalted. Abraham means father of a multitude. Now, again, it's easy to read that and say, okay, so what God is doing is he is looking at Ishmael being born. And if we know nothing else about scripture, if we are just reading the Genesis text straight through the first time, we say, okay, God knows nothing about about the future here. He's not talking about the future, but he sees that Ishmael has been born, that God's promises are coming true. And so what God is doing is what we do when we name people after the fact. He's saying, now you will become the father of many nations because Ishmael is here. And I have no doubt that when Abram heard it, that was his immediate and first thought. He said, ah, because I now have Ishmael, now I have bone of my bones, so to speak. He is from my loins, literally, in the King James. And so, therefore, he says, this is my actual son. No longer is there Eleazar of Damascus. Now I have my own flesh and blood, and, and therefore I will be the father of many nations. But it wasn't to remind him of what had happened in the past. We know this immediately because it wasn't simply Abram who got renamed, but Sarai gets renamed as well. Down in verse 15, God said to Abraham, now, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. It's likely that Sarai and Sarah were really close to one another. Sarai probably meant something more like princely, okay? But as it was a woman's name, princessly which doesn't roll off the tongue. But it means that she had the attributes of a princess, right? But having the attributes of the princess is not the same thing as being a princess. 
we can say that our girls are princessly, that they have the attributes of being princesses and everything that Disney wants to tell them that they are. But that doesn't make them actual princesses. But God is changing her name from somebody who has the attributes of a princess to somebody who actually is a princess. He says, no longer will her name be Sarai, but you will call her Sarah. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. He says, just like princesses do, princesses give birth to princes who become kings. And he says, Sarah will be a princess because kings will come from her. Now the question is, why is God doing this? He's promised that Ishmael, he's promised at least that, that a son of Abraham will inherit Abraham's stuff. And, and he didn't say how that was going to come about, and, and he's got a perfectly good son. He didn't say anything about Sarah and the promises. And yet here we have God saying, Sarah is now going to be renamed as well, which means that the renaming of Abraham wasn't post-event. He didn't rename Abraham the fathertude of a multitude because of Ishmael. He named it before the actual fatherhood happened. The fatherhood that he was going to have was not going to be traced through Ishmael, but through this new son. And Abraham knew it immediately. So notice what he says after this. He says, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah who is 90 year old, bear a child. He laughs, not a laugh of, of unbelief or incredulity, but just, we've tried for so long, God. This is strange. Why, why now? Why not give it to us when we were in our 40s? Why not give it to us when we are in our 50s? Why not even 60s? But she's so far past birthing age. Why have you waited until now? Think of the weight. Some of you know the weight of being infertile and wondering, are we going to have children? Have you ever watched young couples or even couples in their 30s and late 30s go through that? It is an incredible struggle and a pain. And I don't mean like a pain like you've stubbed your toe. It is a a lingering, long-lasting emotional pain that you carry with you. It is hard, hard to watch people be infertile. For Sarah, especially after Hagar is born, Think of the pain she must have felt thinking that for so long Abram went through distress and pain. He was given everything and all he ever wanted was a son and she could not provide it for him. But Sarah was to play an immensely important role. We don't have time to get into it today, unfortunately, but I'm going to tell you, if Sarah doesn't have a child in this manner, the gospel is irrevocably changed. It is no longer gospel. Paul hangs a lot on this story. And I don't mean a small amount. I mean a lot on this story. This is the gospel. This is why Gentiles are included in the promise and not just Jews. This is why, friends, you don't have to be part of the law to be a Christian. You don't have to do circumcision. You don't have to do the dietary regulations. You don't have to be perfect. If it wasn't for this... All of that would go away. But because he used Sarah this way, because he was willing to keep from her what she and Abram wanted for so long, he was able to perform a miracle that even they didn't understand. So God changes the names of people. God 
prophetically names. He names prophetically. It's not a naming based on what has happened, but what he will do. He doesn't call Abram the father of many nations because Ishmael is there. He names him the father of many nations or a father of a multitude because of what he's going to do. He doesn't name Sarah, Sarah, princess, because she already is one. He names her that because she will be. When God names, he names prophetically going forward. And even Isaac, as, as both Abraham and Sarah laughs, by the time it comes for Sarah to have the child, he, she is told, Abraham, is, Abraham is, is told, you are going to name him Isaac, which means simply he laughs. Now you can look at that and you can say, well, that's just because Abram laughed and, and because Sarah laughed. But it's not because they laughed, although it's probably partially to do with that. Up to this point, you would not be wrong to not get the full-orbed picture of who our God is through this reading of Genesis. So if you didn't know anything about Christianity and you were to read through Genesis, you would find a God in Genesis 1 and 2 who is incredibly good at what he does. He makes things and they work well. They're beautiful. They're picturesque. He cares about his creatures. He forms man and he, he cares about leading him into knowledge so he lets all the animals pass in front of him so that he can see that he needs more and then God lovingly provides him what is more and man looks at what God has done for him and he says it is good. But after Genesis 3, what picture do we have of this God? What does he do? He holds true to his word. Genesis 5 and that genealogy is nothing but death and death and death and death. And yeah, these guys live for 900 years, but death reigns. Eventually, it catches up to them all. God wipes out the entire world, save one man's family with a flood. He destroys them all without mercy. He disperses them abroad in Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel. It would not be hard to think that he is a God of retribution and a God of anger. And then all of a sudden, Genesis 12 happens and he says, I'm going to bless you. When he names Isaac, he laughs. It's not just Abram and it's not Abraham and it's not just Sarah who are laughing. It's God who's laughing as well. Because it is through Isaac that all of the people of God will be named. It is not through Ishmael. We are sons, Galatians 4 says, like Isaac, sons of promise, children of promise, not children of genealogy. So that when God says he laughs, it is a happy God who is bringing a gospel to his people through Isaac. It is through Isaac that Christ would come. It is through Isaac that the Spirit through Christ would come to us, proclaiming loudly that we are to call him Abba, Father. It is through Isaac that not only Abram and Sarah would become fathers and uh, mothers, that's the word I was looking for, of a multitude, but that God himself would become a father to a multitude of people. So then what, what happens is we move forward, we find out that Jesus is given that name. The, the very scripture that we read this morning, Jesus is given the name Jesus. The angels say, you will call him Jesus, Right? Let's not be confused about that. When the angels say you will call his name Jesus, it isn't because they were sitting around trying to think of a nice name for him. They say, okay, this kid's going to be this kid's going to be the savior of the world. What should we name him? Kevin? No, Kevin doesn't work. No one wants to be called savior Kevin. That doesn't work. Jesus. Okay, well Jesus might work. Can you say it a little bit more gumption? Jesus. 
That's a name that will save. Let's call him that, right? That's not what they do. This is clearly coming from God. God has said, you will call him Jesus. And then Matthew tells us exactly why. Why is his name Jesus? His name is not Jesus because it's simply a reference back to Joshua, although it is. His name is not Jesus because it has cultural import, although it does. His name is not Jesus because in the culture it was a very popular name, high up on that list of boy and girl's names, although it probably was. His name was Jesus strictly because he will save his people from their sins. That is what he was sent to do. That is his purpose in life. God didn't send his son, as we talked about even this morning, simply to be a good example for you, although he is that. He didn't send his son simply so that he could write a nice love postcard saying, I love you, and all that sentimental stuff that we seem to love, although he did that. He sent his son to die for your sins so that he might save his people from the wrath that his father was going to pour out on them. That is why he was sent, and it is encapsulated in his name. Therefore, when Paul says, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Notice, it is not the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, but it is specifically just his name, just the name Jesus, the name that means he will save his people from their sins. Therefore, we both declare and demonstrate the name of Jesus. When he says in word or deed, he means whatever you do. Whether you speak or whether you act, you are declaring that Jesus Christ has saved his people from their sins. You are demonstrating that Jesus Christ has saved his people from their sins. As far as our words go, how do we declare in word that we save, that he is the one who saves his people from their sins? How do we, how do, we do that? Well, we simply evangelize. We declare to people the good news of Jesus Christ. We declare that it is by him and him alone that you are saved from the wrath of God. We tell them very strongly that Christ has come, that you might not sin anymore, but more than that, that you might be happy and healthy in the Lord. Whether cancer or turmoil strike you, that there is something better for you, that is good news in Christ. And that is how we, with our own words, declare that Jesus Christ has come to save his people from his sins. We simply open up our mouths and evangelize people. We tell them, Jesus Christ has come to save you from your sins. Repent and believe. Notice, we don't just pay other people to do that. We don't just give money so that others will do that. We don't just rely on educated people to do that, trained people to do that. Paul says, whatever you do in word or deed, everything you do is pointed at picturing or demonstrating or telling and declaring that Jesus Christ saves people from their sin. We also, with our works, declare this. We do that in the ordinances. We do it in, in baptism in the Lord's Supper. Again, I cannot think of a greater demonstration of the gospel in action than the three seconds that it takes to dunk somebody underwater and bring them back up. It's such a simple thing to do, and it is profound in every way. We are demonstrating their death and their resurrection by putting them in a medium that they cannot live in and bringing them back out of it. We are demonstrating that they are united to Christ in death, being buried in the ground and coming back up out of it. More than that, we are declaring that they themselves have been cleansed from their sins because we don't just put them into dirt, but we put them into water. 
and bring them back out, saying that you have been cleansed from your sins, your sins have been forgiven. Baptism is so closely linked with the forgiveness of sins. More than that, in every single baptism that we do, we are all participating in it. It is not just a person being baptized. The Great Commission is not go out and be baptized, but it is go and baptize. When we baptize people, we are declaring the truth of the gospel. We are saying that your confession is right and true, and because your confession is right and true of the Lord, you have been cleansed of your sins, you have been united with Christ, and we stand as a church and affirm those things. The Lord's Supper is the same. We declare that we need a sacrifice, we need a broken body and spilled blood to be made whole again. For nourishment for our bodies, we have to have a body that is crushed and blood that flows. Paul says, every time you do this, you declare the Lord's death until he comes. We declare in our works of the ordinances. We also, in our words, demonstrate that we are people who have been saved by Christ. We don't just declare things that are our future. We don't just declare that that Christ will save you in the end from what ails you, that you will simply get out of hell. But if Christ has saved you from your sins, that means that your life here is terribly different than what it used to be. That has actual and real emphasis in your life today. And so in word, we demonstrate with new speech. Paul says, you are not to lie to one another because you've put off the old self with its practices. Your speech cannot be the same that it was. You cannot talk the same way you used to. You cannot look at the Lord and say, blessed be the Lord, and turn around and curse your brother who is made in his image. You cannot have mouths that are filled with, with lies and, and wrath and the venom of asps. You must put these things away. And by the way that we talk, listen, Scripture puts a ton of emphasis on your speech. By the way you talk, By the way you talk, you demonstrate that you have actually been saved in Christ Jesus. Not only by the confession of your mouth, but by all the other stuff as well. We also demonstrate in our works. Our good works demonstrate that Christ has indeed saved us. Listen, Christ has not simply come to let you get into heaven It's like saying that Christ is going to cure you of smoking by killing you of lung cancer, right? It's not just the end. He's not going to cure you of your sins simply by letting you wallow in them until the day you die and then saving you from hell. But Christ and saving you from your sins has not just forgiven them, but he has provided his spirit that you might overcome them. It doesn't mean that it's immediate. You are going to be, forgive the biblical terminology, like a snake. You've got to molt that skin off of you. And it's going to take time. And it's not always pretty. But it's got to happen. It's got to happen because Christ has freed you from that. So go back, and we again read this this morning, to the book of Ephesians. And notice 
how chapter 2, the first 10 verses of chapter 2, bookend this so well. And that is something that's so missed in these particular verses that we are so focused on the fact that it is faith and grace alone, not something that you have done. We, we focus so much on, on how you get saved and we don't focus nearly enough on how Paul bookends both 2.1 and 2.10 talking about the effects of your salvation. Paul says this, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You sinned and you just walked in them. You trespassed and you just walked in it. It was the natural course of life for you. This is what you did. But then grace entered and Christ entered and you were awakened and alive again. You were dead before and now you are alive. And so does he expect that you are going to walk the same way? He certainly does not. Notice verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created, notice, created. You were born the other way, but now you've been created again. This is new birth talk here. You have been recreated in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you might walk in them. You used to walk this way, but now you walk this way. You cannot call yourself a follower of Jesus and not strive and press forward to live a life filled with good works because you are not demonstrating what the name of Jesus Christ means. If Jesus has forgiven you, if he has cleansed you from your sins, if he has removed those from you, you are to walk in holiness before him. You are to be holy for I am holy, says the Lord. And if you're going to walk in the name of Jesus Christ, it means all those other stuff that you've ever heard that you are a representative of his and therefore it means character. When you pray in the name of Jesus Christ, yes, of course it means you're praying in his character. That you, you have to pray in line with the things that Jesus wants. You don't just say a magic word. But what does Jesus want? What does his name represent? His name represents salvation. And of course, that means he's holy. How can someone who is unholy save those who are unholy from their sins? We need somebody who is holy. Of course it means that he is loving. How was he going to save us but not but by anything else but giving his, his life as a ransom for many? Of course it implies that he's loving. All of those things are true, but all of them are found in salvation. It is the meaning of his name that we are to walk in, which models his character. Christian, you bear the name Christian. You bear that name. You are a disciple of the living and resurrected Christ. You should be involved in the, in the business that he was involved in. This is just the most obvious thing. And Christianity has, has in parts and in places, really muddled this. If you are to be discipled in him, you are following in his trade. That's what it means to be a disciple. You are a learned follower. If you were a disciple of Epicurus, you're an Epicurean. You do what the Epicureans do. If you were a disciple of a welder, you're going to weld. That's what disciples do. If you are a disciple of Christ, if you walk in his name, you will act and speak and talk like he did. It doesn't mean you're going to do it perfectly, but it does mean that that is your goal and your aim to be a better disciple every single day. And that's what Paul is getting at when he says you are to walk in the name of Jesus Christ. Everything you do, whether you speak or act, it is to be in the name of Jesus Christ. By no other means 
can you model him than that? You've been called in the name of Jesus, whose very name symbolizes his purpose fulfilled in you. He has come to save you from your sin. Let us live out and proclaim this reality with our lives and voices. This statement is trustworthy and true that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. Let us model that and proclaim that to a lost and dying world. Let us pray. Father God, we are thankful that your kindness and your mercy are upon us. We are thankful that you have given us Jesus Christ, our Lord, as a ransom for us who were sinful before you. You have also provided to us your spirit so that we might not linger in our sin, but, Father, we might move toward holiness to glorify your name by our actions in ways that we never could have before. Your grace is powerful and active. We thank you, Father, for your presence in our lives. We thank you for your gift of Jesus Christ and the provision of the Spirit that we might glorify you not only by what we say and what we speak, but by how we act and the things we do, that we might both demonstrate and declare that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. We ask for this in his name. Amen.